uh, Pastor Sean on December the 22nd is going to be here, and he's going to preach through a relatively new song. It was written uh, either last year or the year before called Is He Worthy? It's not technically a Christmas song, but uh, other than that particular song, we're working through some old Christmas hymns. And um, in this morning, uh, we are going to look at the passage of Scripture that supports or props up uh, the very first song that we sang, which is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, if you know anything about that hymn, it was written in the 1700s by a guy named John Wesley. And, uh, and it was kind of tweaked and modified by a friend of his named George Whitfield. And uh, the majority of that Christmas hymn uh, comes from Luke chapter 2, these first 14 verses that we're going to look at. It's not the only place where... Um, uh, that, that uh, these men pulled from in the Scripture, but it is the primary place. And so we're just going to kind of work um, section by section through Luke chapter 2, and, uh, and then we're going to close out the service this morning by uh, singing uh, with context, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And so if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some Bibles in the seat in front of you. Uh, the translation that we preach from is the English Standard Version. You'll find that in the pew. If you don't own a Bible, uh, take that one with you and read it and be changed by it. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. But uh, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned these words about the incarnation of Christ. Starting in verse 1, the physician Luke, he says this, "...in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered." This was the first registration with, uh, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also, up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on peace. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this historical account of Christ coming in the incarnation. This isn't his birthday that we celebrate. This is his incarnation that we celebrate. Jesus is eternal. He's active with you in creation along with the Spirit, and so we celebrate that we don't worship a God who's distant. We worship a God who is near. So remind us of that as we think on Christ's humanity this Christmas season. But Lord, as we think
think and meditate on his humanity, let us not forget that he is God eternal. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, and we have notes provided for you in the, in the bulletin, the first thing that uh, I would like to draw your attention to, really what the, the first five verses are supporting, is that the circumstances around Christ's incarnation matter. The circumstances around Christ's incarnation, they matter. Christ, he was, he was born under the rule of the, the first Roman emperor. And, uh, and our text says right at, in verse 1 there that that emperor was Caesar Augustus. And, and this emperor, he, he sent out a decree, and that decree was that the world would be taxed or the world would be registered. Now, the, the, the scripture here, I don't know what all the different translations say, but in the ESV here, the, the word world is used. And, and there are many times in the scripture that the word world is used where it doesn't mean all of the world. Uh, it doesn't mean the entire earth. And, and this is one of those instances. Luke here, who wrote uh, this book, this gospel uh, called Luke, he's referring to those, all of those who live inside of the Roman world. Uh, those outside the, the Roman world at this time, they were regarded as, as nothing at the time that Luke is penning this. They were, they were regarded as, as non-existent. The Roman Empire was really the central hub of life as far as uh, um, Caesar Augustus and, and this political empire was concerned. The, the world was, uh, the Roman Empire, the Roman world was considered the world at the time Luke penned this, it was considered the place that, that mattered. Literally, the word world here, if you were to do a, a word study, it means the inhabited land. And so this was a time where the rule, or as the book of Genesis puts it, the scepter was transferred. It was leaving Judah, and it was coming under the dominion of a foreign power, this Roman empire. This was a time where strangers were ruling over God's people. There, were, there, was, there was no longer this independent community, if you will, of God's people. They were counted with the rest of the Roman Empire. They were uh, required to register like the rest of the Roman Empire. They were taxed and required to pay taxes, to rend Caesar's, that which is Caesar's, like the rest of the Roman Empire, and therefore subject to the laws of the Roman Empire. So this foreign power here, this Roman Empire, at this point in history, consolidated uh, the world. There was no longer this distinct government for, for, uh, for God's people. And, and this is the time, if you're familiar with your Old Testament at all, and, and you get into the book of Daniel where prophecies and interpretation of dreams and things like that can get kind of confusing, this was a time that the prophet Daniel prophesied about as he interpreted uh, a dream, a vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had. In Daniel chapter 2, we have it up on the screen, you don't have to, to turn there, but in Daniel chapter 2, verses 40 through 44, Daniel here, he gives this interpretation of a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, and he says, there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divide, a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And then get this, verse 44. And in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is the kingdom of God that's prophesied right in Daniel chapter 2. This is Daniel interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream regarding the four kingdoms. If you were to read the entirety of that passage of Scripture, and Christians have historically and almost universally agreed that the Roman Empire was this fourth kingdom that's spoken about here in Daniel chapter 2. This fourth kingdom is is where the, the people of God are mixed with pagan worshipers. This fourth kingdom is where God is going to set up his kingdom. And this kingdom is so powerful. It's this kingdom that's so powerful it won't ever be destroyed. It's a kingdom that that can't be turned over to another kingdom in defeat. It's a kingdom that makes an end to all the other kingdoms. It's it's the kingdom of God that that will expand globally as God redeems a people to himself. It's an unshakable kingdom. And get this, a baby in a manger ushers it in. A baby in a manger ushers it in. All right, one commentary, uh, commentator, he says this, he says, The Roman Empire is the fourth kingdom because it was in that time of that monarchy, and when it was at its height, that the kingdom of Christ was set up in the world by the preaching of the everlasting gospel. The Roman kingdom, it was as strong as iron, according to Daniel, but towards the latter end of the Roman monarchy, it grew very weak. In Daniel 2, there's a stone that's cut out without hands that's mentioned. This represents the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christ's kingdom was set up in the world in the time of the Roman Empire and upon the ruins of Satan's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. This is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, for it should be neither raised nor supported by human power or policy, No visible hand should act in the setting up of Christ's kingdom, but it should be done invisibly by the Spirit of the Lord of hosts. This was the stone which the builders refused because it was not cut out by their hands. But it's now become the cornerstone, the headstone of the corner. The gospel church is a kingdom. It's a kingdom which Christ is the sole and sovereign monarch of, in which he rules by his word and spirit, to which he gives protection and law, and from which he receives all tribute. It's a kingdom not of this world, and yet it's set up in this world. It is the kingdom of God among men. So Jesus is a baby in his humanity. He he ushers in this kingdom, and we see that this is this preordained in this significant time in history in which Jesus came and added humanity to his deity. It's a time in which he came to usher in the kingdom of God. And we realize and we know and we confess as Christians that not only, like I said earlier, not only did Jesus come and he he came as a baby, 
But we also know when we confess as Christians that Jesus is God eternal who, who made the heavens and the earth. And he didn't subtract his deity when he came in the incarnation. He's not young because he's a baby and nor is he old because he's eternal. He is eternally begotten of the Father and he comes in the incarnation exactly where he should be. He comes in Bethlehem. He comes in Bethlehem. Jesus born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem, it, it means house of bread. The living bread. Jesus, who came in the lineage of David, the, the, the living bread is born in a town called the house of bread. The living bread came and dwelt among us. This bread whom we feast on when we partake of the Lord's Supper, this bread whom when we taste, we, we never hunger again, this bread whom when we taste, we realize that every other bread is stale and, and undernourishing. Jesus, according to John chapter 6, he's the bread of life. He's the only bread of life. He's the only one who gives us life. And he's born in this place called the house of bread. And the circumstances around the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, they're, they're also important because the incarnation speaks to, to what we uh, as Christians have called uh, in, in theology the humiliation of Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard that terminology or not, but the humiliation of Christ is referring to his earthly life, his humanity, his suffering, his ministry, his death. Right? Jesus, he, he suffered immensely in his humanity. In the humiliation of our Lord, it began in a manger. It began in a manger as his, his mom was forced to give birth to him and to lay him in a trough where animals eat. Think about that for a minute. The, 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 the manger of Jesus, this feeding trough that he was laid in, it foreshadows what the incarnation of Christ was all about, right? It foreshadows that. Isaiah 53.3, it's prophecy of Isaiah. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The Apostle Paul says of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, in, in being found, Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The, the humiliation of Jesus includes that he left glory and he took on flesh. He suffered in his body. He suffered in his soul. He, he was tempted, but... Without sin, he was rejected, he was despised, he was crucified like a criminal on a cross where the wrath of God was poured out on him for my sin, for my sin, for your sin. It's the humiliation of Christ. This is why Christ came. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what we should be thinking on. When we sing, heart the herald angels sing with its celebratory 
meter, we can celebrate something as awful as the humiliation of Christ because of what it accomplished for us. Now, why did I wade through this with you? Why, why are the circumstances around the incarnation important? I mean, first, because it's included in Scripture, right? And the, the, all the details of Scripture are important, even when we get bogged down in numbers. It's important. God put it there, right? But also, I think knowing the, 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 the prophecies of old, knowing that Christ really did fulfill them, right? knowing that, that God had a sovereign predetermined plan that he executed and is executing in his perfect timing that increases our faith. It should increase our faith. It builds our confidence. It, it shakes our wobbly knees when we come in here after, after six days of, of this tough, sinful laboring because we have these wretched bodies that are still inflicted with sin. And as we come and as we worship on the Lord's Day, we're worshiping these lofty things that are so difficult for us to grasp as, as weak, sinful, broken people. But yet we turn and we're reminded that we can have confidence in what we're confessing, not because of anything found in us, but because Jesus Christ came and he was incarnated as a baby as part of the Father's eternal plan, and the Holy Spirit has applied what Christ has accomplished to us sinful, broken, needy people. This promised Messiah, Jesus, he's, he's the man of sorrows, and he, he accomplished the, the, the Father's rescue plan for us. Secondly, if you're taking notes, the most important event in history was told to shepherds. The most important event in history was told to shepherds, right? Angels were commissioned by the triune God with this very important message. They were charged to announce God's plan, God's rescue plan that the Old Testament had been building for, for thousands of years, and they were told that they were to deliver it to some shepherds in a field. Now, if if I were God, and it's a very good thing for all of us that I'm not, I don't think I would have picked shepherds. I think I would have picked someone that had some more influence. I think I would have picked, uh, in my mind, something a bit more strategic uh, in my own limited thinking. Let's announce it to kings. Let's announce it to the Caesar Augustus so that, that it could spread a, a bit more quickly or a bit more effectively. Let's, let's give it to people with prestige. But that's not what the Lord commissioned the angel to do. And think about it for just a minute. Let's just meditate on that for a minute. It, it was summertime probably, and these men, were, they were doing what they should be doing. They were faithfully and carefully watching over the flock that had been entrusted to them. And in Bible times, shepherds, if you know anything about shepherds, they, um, they led their flock. They led their flock to green pastures. They, they watched them closely all day long. They protected them from predators like wolves and, and sheep when they would eat, which is everything that they were concerned about is eating and eating and eating, so much so that they, they could wander off cliffs because they can't be bothered to look up to see where they're walking. 
And so not only did the shepherd have to protect the sheep from wolves, he had to protect the sheep from themselves because they would wander off cliffs. And sometimes when sheep would eat, they would get turned over, um, and they would get turned over on their backs, and it could be difficult for them to digest. And if they're left on their backs for too long, they can uh, suffocate. And so the, the shepherd had to make sure that they didn't get uh, turned over on their backs so that he didn't lose any sheep. The, the shepherd had to be quite attentive. There was no, no time to take, uh, to take off by any means. He had to be um, close to a sheep. And a sheep, over his, his, his care of them, they trusted him. They recognized his voice. They would follow his voice. They would know the voice of an imposter. And the sheep, with how intimately associated he was, or the shepherd, with how intimately associated he was with his sheep, he would begin, he, he, he stunk. He stunk. After a hard day's work, right? He stunk. He smelled like the sheep that he was around. These men, these shepherds, they, they were entrusted with the most important message ever. Right? The most important message ever was given to them by an angel. And if we, we look through the eyes of Christ, and certainly we have the completed canon of Scripture, it's not too hard to see why it is that, that the Lord chose shepherds. Right? We see the significance of shepherds being entrusted with this message. Right? Shepherds were entrusted with news about the chief shepherd, right? You guys know John chapter 10, our chief shepherd, our good shepherd. Was that baby in the manger? Was that baby in the feeding trough? And our shepherd, our good shepherd that John tells us about in, in John chapter 10, if you were to do a survey, I won't have you turn there for time's sake, but just to give you an overview, what does our good shepherd do? What does Christ do for us? It says he opens the gate for the sheep. He even goes further. Jesus declares, I am the gate. Not only do I open the gate, but I am the gate. The sheep know the voice of the good shepherd, and they trust him, and they know of an imposter. They know the voice of imposters. Our good shepherd fights off wolves in sheep's clothing, and he provides safety to sheep. Our good shepherd leads sheep beside green pastures. If you were to go to Psalm 23, green pastures and still waters. And ultimately, the good shepherd, what? He, he lays down his life, didn't he? Laid down his life for his sheep. And so shepherds in a field were entrusted with this good news that the chief shepherd had come as a baby. And that this chief, this chief shepherd was going to make everything right. He's going to usher in the kingdom. This long-awaited kingdom. He's going to bring it in. Third, the incarnation of Jesus, it chases off fear. You look at verses 10 through 12. The angel said to them, fear not. For I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, if you saw an angel, if I saw an angel, it'd be terrifying. If you tell me you see an angel today, I'm going to look at you with squinty eyes. But the... Um, if we see an angel out in the field, and I'm tending to shepherds, um, that's quite terrifying. 
We'll say that that's quite terrifying, and it was probably terrifying to these shepherds. It, it wasn't anything like uh, anything that they had ever witnessed, and, and I think that, that we have legitimate reasons to fear angels, but the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not. And, and this, this isn't this isolated command here. It's tied to something. You look at the text, he says, fear not for behold, or fear not because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And I think of, of John's words in 1 John. I think we have this on the screen, but 1 John 4, verses 16 through 19. The Apostle John, he says, So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. But this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We, we have come, according to the Apostle John, we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. What allows John to make such a claim like that? How, how can he have certainty? It's because he knows Christ. Because he knows this baby that came in a manger. It's because these, these shepherds that were entrusted with the good news delivered that good news and it had a ripple effect that far out, outlasts them. And this good news was, was faithfully given to John. And he confessed that Christ is the Father's promised Messiah. And he knows and can have confidence that God has loved him because Christ died. Because Christ was bodily and eternally resurrected from the dead. And so he can say, there's no fear in love. I know God's love because I know Christ. I know his love because I know Christ. And, and perfect love, this perfect love that the Father has demonstrated in that while I was, a still, I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That kind of love drives out fear. So the angel can say, fear not. God has, has brought us out of the domain of darkness, according to Colossians 1.13, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his Son. This is the kingdom that, that Christ inaugurated at his incarnation. If you're in Christ, I would encourage you as the angels encouraged the shepherds, fear not. Fear not. And if you find yourself in fear, it could be due to a few things, and this is by no means exhaustive, but if you find yourself fearful as a believer this morning, it could be because you have your 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 gaze, your vision, your perspective is more on your circumstances than they are on your Savior. I'm so guilty of that. I'm so guilty of that. One of the reasons why we come and we worship here on the Lord's Day is so that we can be reminded to lift our eyes off of our circumstances onto Christ who's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Because I'm forgetful, guys. I'm so forgetful of that. 
Another reason that that you may be fearful is because there's some habitual unrepentant sin that's present in your life. You have a Savior who is faithful to forgive, who's faithful to embrace. We have a Savior who, who looked at the woman thrown down and caught in adultery with compassion. The charges were against her. She was caught in adultery and she was caught by two or three witnesses and the Pharisees were ready to throw rocks at her. And they said, Jesus, she's caught in adultery and, the, and, the, and that's a crime and the punishment is death, death by stoning. And Jesus replies with compassion. He says, he that is without sin cast the first stone, right? And Jesus Christ, the only one that was qualified there to cast the first stone, after one by one those Pharisees dropped their stones and they walked away, Jesus looks at this woman caught in adultery, and he says, where, where are your accusers? She says, they, they're gone. They're not here. He says, I don't, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Christ embraced her. Christ embraced her, and it was his embracing of her. As the, that was the foundational thing by which he then told her to go and sin no more. If you're caught in sin this morning and it's making you fearful, you have a Savior. You have a a shepherd who's not afraid to smell like sheep. You have a shepherd who left glory and came down in the incarnation and dwelt among us and got into the messiness of our life and is inviting you with accepting eyes to come to come to him and find rest, to come to him and fear not. And on that, that truth, that unchanging truth is is where you find the, the power, the motivation to repent of your sin because you realize that, man, it's nothing compared to my glorious Savior. So fear not. And then finally, the angelic multitude that join the angel, that announce this good news of great joy. They teach us weighty, eternal things. They teach us the weighty, eternal things. They, they teach us, first and foremost, that we can worship the triune God because of the incarnation of Christ. Jesus has, has made our worship of our triune God possible. It wasn't possible It's not possible without Christ. Without Christ, we can't worship. Without Christ, we don't have the capacity to worship. Without Christ, we don't even have the desire to worship. But God has made the impossible possible through Christ Jesus. He took distant, idle worshipers like me and like you and who, who, who are ridden with sin, and he reconciled us to himself in Jesus, and he did the miraculous. He made us a new creation made us a new creation. He took idol worshipers who were content on worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And he made us worshipers of him. The second thing these angelic creatures, the angelic multitude, they teach us is they they, they give us language around how to worship. FX, a moment ago when he was praying, spoke about how the words of God give us the language to pray back to God, to worship the Lord. And this is true. The angels declared in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, 
peace among those with whom he is pleased. Think about this. How, how can men and women who are, are, are so distant from God come up with language worthy of his glory? We can't. We can't. And we shouldn't. When men and women have tried to do that, we, they've wandered off into cults. We think we have so many cults around that, that try to bring on, uh, try to wear this name of, 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 of Christian, this title of Christian. It's because somewhere along the line, they begin to invent their own ways of worshiping the Lord, their own words of worshiping the Lord. And eventually, they abandon the Lord for their own idols. And the beauty is this, God knows that we can't invent words. He knows that we can't come up with things that ascribe Him the glory due His name. So He gave us language. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. This is the, the overflow, if you will. The angels demonstrate this is this overflow of a heart completely enthralled with the good news of Christ's coming. The good news of the incarnation of Jesus. So he's given us words in Scripture to help us form words, us finite, broken, sinful Christians. He's given us words that we can use so that we can, with, with hearts that are just overflowing with joy, so that we can say these words, ascribe these words back to him in song, in the preaching of the word. As we pray, He's given us these things. Third, angelic multitude, they teach us that Jesus brought peace to His people through the incarnation. So they, they teach us that we can worship the triune God because of the incarnation. They give us a language around how to worship, and they teach us that Jesus brought peace to His people through the incarnation. Jesus made peace through the incarnation because the incarnation paved the way to the cross. Again, it was a foreshadowing, if you will, of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. The cross was the conclusion of Christ's humiliation. And we see his glorification, his exaltation in his bodily, eternal, resurrected, his body. And we see it in the ascension at the right hand of the Father. His humiliation ended with his crucifixion, but he brought us peace through his humiliation. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Colossians 1, 18 through 20. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God